0: Hey, what's up everybody? This week I'm so very fortunate to speak with the incredible poet Tim Siebels about his upcoming work, Voodoo Libretto. This is episode 86 of Untender Tracks. start off by talking about your new book
1: well sure Um, it's a new and selected collection uh, basically a a summing up in some some ways of what I've been writing for the last 40 years um, up until you know pretty recently Um, so you know there are a couple things that were that were there were things I liked about it anyway. Um, you know, you very rarely do a retrospective of your own work. You just, I mean, you generally don't say, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to read my first book all the way through my most recent book. You never would do that, you know? So uh, having this collection come to, you know, to be was a, uh, gave me an excuse to, you know, just go through all these things I've written. And, you know, so it's it's funny, you just, you sometimes I think you forget how much of your waking life you had committed to trying to say things a particular way, you know, and so it was good. It it also makes you think that, or I should say, it made me think that, you know, maybe I hadn't wasted my life, you know, maybe I have gotten a few things accomplished and, and, um, and, uh, you know some things that you that I wrote I I, I still like very much even from the first books into the last you know and it's nice to feel that even if you're delusional it's nice to feel that maybe you got at the meat of a few things at the heart of a few things maybe you hit some notes that were really true that's that's been a pleasure
0: <laughs> so I'm glad that you um are able to look back at your career with such positivity that's <laughs> <laughs> that is that is that is good to know um and i have to say as as the outreach coordinator for etruscan i can hear phil brady somewhere behind me saying um please do read through the selected works of tim siebel's <laughs> available at etruscan press um <laughs> and that they're all they're all gems um, <laughs>
1: well um, I, that's a lovely assessment but uh you know i, I like what I've done, but I don't know if we all qualify as gyms
0: <laughs> um I feel is mad right now i can hear i can hear it <laughs> um so what what is it like doing a project like this on a more serious note where when you are trying to um, pull out selected works from the past and and find ways to kind of marry them or or blend them with new with new pieces and new ideas.
1: Well, it's complicated, but um basically, each each book, as I went through each book to make choices about what I would feature in the in this collection, I just treated each book independently. I didn't really try to make the books, at least I didn't try intentionally, to make each book speak to the next. My assumption was that because I am the same writer, a number of the same themes are going to recur. Mm-hmm. And I think the relationship between the work will be pretty clear mm-hmm. in some respects. But I also wanted there to be chances for someone who was reading the collection to see that you know there are different kinds of departures. From maybe what had happened in earlier work,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, so but it was yeah, as I said, it's uh, you know it's nice to to look back at your work and think, okay, you know I remember writing this or or some pieces. I mean, of course, you remember all your poems, but some pieces you think, wow, well, you know, I wonder where what made me write this particular poem. Sometimes it's not you don't remember, you know, the thing that moved you. Um, other than that, um, the, the difficulty, of course, is picking the poems that you're gonna have featured in this last collection, and then the poems that will be relegated, you know, to the original collections mm-hmm. forever. And only people who have those collections are gonna see certain poems. Mm-hmm. And that's difficult because, you know, um, I, I I like my poems. <laughs> Now I, You know, you want them all to be featured or something. But, but you know, you tried to pick the poems. I tried to pick the poems that were, you know, doing things maybe better than I did in some other poems. But you know, it's very hard because it's subjective. Mm-hmm. And as the author, you know, you really... You, I don't know. I could say with with real confidence that, oh, I know what my best poems are, and I know which my my less uh, accomplished pieces are. You think you have an idea about it, but I don't know. You know, mm-hmm. again, if you're the author of things, it's not. I mean, truthfully, nobody is objective about a poem. You know, you read poems and you feel things about them because you're, you're who you are. So uh, it's not like I could turn to someone else and say, show me what the best poems are because I could ask five different people and they'd have five different answers. So, but what I tried to do was, um, you know, pick poems that, you know, for whatever reason, while I was going through these works, you know really charged me up or mi- really you know resonated again with me. that's what I tried to do when I was making my choices
0: yeah, and um in past uh, episodes of this of this podcast, um, I've interviewed a lot of like sociologists and psychologists and criminologists because that is more like what my academic training has been in, and, and we've talked mm-hmm. in there a lot about the. Um, especially with the new generation of scholars about the the myth of being objective. <laughs> so you, know, uh, you hit on a, a major theme um, that we've been exploring here for the last couple of years. And just this uh-huh. idea that grad school um, hammers home this idea of ob- objectivity uh, right. above all else. And it just isn't really a thing. It
1: doesn't really <laughs> exist. Not really. No, <laughs> not no. really.
0: Certainly not in matters
1: of art. No. For sure. That would be a very tough one to call. hmm.
0: Mm hmm. So I was wondering were there were there places in the new pieces where you made a a conscious decision to kind of depart from from your past style or your past um beliefs or or themes or or just anything from your past work?
1: No, I don't know that I ever did that consciously, but sometimes um you begin a poem and you just know it's probably going somewhere that you haven't been before. Mm-hmm. Um I've never thought to myself, I don't want to write that way anymore. I, I've never done that. I'm not sure I would know how to make that departure, to be mm-hmm. quite honest. But, there, you know, you write, you write. And, and, you know, I think for most people, if you do anything over a long period of time, your sensitivities and your intelligence and your understanding of the craft of that thing deepens and widens. And so your work changes naturally because you see more carefully and you understand composition better. You, um, and also you've lived. And so your life also, the weight of your experiences, of course, enter the words that you're writing, you know? So that's naturally yeah. going to give rise to an evolution in terms of what you write, how you write, the way you think through a poem. Mm-hmm. So I've never done it consciously, but I, I believe that uh, my work has developed organically in a, in a relatively good way.
0: You know? mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the title of the book is, is Voodoo Libretto, and I was, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, where the title originates from.
1: Well, it's funny that you'd ask. Um, one of the dedicatees um, to the book is Jimi Hendrix. And, uh, and I've loved Hendrix since I was a kid. And I still to this day find probably no single artist's work as ultimately cont- compelling to me as his. Um, now I, and I love many musicians. I don't want uh, you to get me wrong. But his his overall, the overarching gestures of his work, for reasons that of course will remain mysterious, just speak to me in a really um, profound way. Mm -hmm. And so he had this song called Voodoo Child. You may know this, I don't know, Mm -hmm. you're younger than I am. There's no reason you would necessarily know Hendrix the way I do, but um, but he had a a, a song that I love called Voodoo Child, Slight Return. Mm -hmm. There was another, piece um, that was just called Voodoo Child. And uh, and in it, basically, he's proclaiming that he is a different thing. He's a voodoo child, unlike anyone else, which, of course, he could prove by the way he played the guitar. And so, I don't know, I just love the idea of voodoo being this kind of pagan spirituality that suggests just a different order of things mm-hmm. in, the, in the cosmos or in the human, in the human uh, world, a human slash transcendent realm. Um, and so I, I like the word voodoo. Also, it's sound. I like the sound <laughs> of it. And a libretto is a long, a long oral work. Mm-hmm. And so this collection is a long you know, oral work. <laughs> uh, even though it's on the page, of course, it's, it's, you know, in your mind, you are speaking the poem as you read it. Um, and so voodoo libretto, I like the sound of it. And I like the idea of borrowing uh, that title, um, uh, that word from Hendrix's, you know, his, his, his album, Electric Ladyland, you know, voodoo child and voodoo child slight return. So I just like voodoo. And then there's something also, there's mischief. In um, in that title too, voodoo is you know part of the dark magic or you know the quote unquote illegitimate approach to spirituality. Mm-hmm. And I just like the idea that um, Hendrix claimed that he was a voodoo child, and by my great and enduring passion for his music, I feel like a voodoo child too. <laughs>
0: That is, and so uh, and so, so that's right.
1: where the title comes from. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I like. Yeah, I mean, voodoo is very. It has a very rebellious history, like much like Hendrix, right? As this yes. sort of mishmash uh, of of various sort of religious and spiritual practices brought over uh, by people who were enslaved, and just kind that's of a right. way to rebel against. That's um, right. All of all of the all the various orders of the day.
1: Yes, there there is an African spirituality that stands in direct uh, contrast to what would what we would experience of Christianity.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, and I like the idea of there being this alternative way of imagining what is sacred or engaging what is sacred and and engaging what is not visible. Um, however you want to imagine that. Uh, and so I like that. And I also, as I said, I don't have, I don't have a lot of, of affection for the larger, extremely well-organized and really aggressive religions. Um, I like spiritualities that are, are, are more personal, private, more secret in a certain kind of way, because I, I think each of us lives a very particular life in relation to all that we do and don't understand, mm-hmm. and so Voodoo also always struck me as something as, as a as a, a religious practice or as a spiritual practice that was made more room for individual engagements with the less explicable realm. I'll say.
0: And and certainly fostered um, a, a level of 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 mystery, yeah. Right, which I I think is also important in, in poetry.
1: Yes, absolutely. And yeah, you want. I mean, mystery is a part of every moment that we're awake. We just are often inattentive to mystery, mm. or we are so insistent on making sense of everything that we simply sweep aside all that we can't explain on a daily basis. And I like the idea that voodoo, the very word voodoo makes people think of, you know, something out of bounds in some way, some other way of being that is, at least in terms of the Western model, something that, you know, is, um, uh, what would you say? Well, certainly rebellious, but also just um, apocryphal and, threatening in a certain kind of way because the church certainly didn't want to talk about voodoo i'll tell you that <laughs>
0: <laughs> not not at all um and and still don't and it's, it's interesting too i mean i'm a i'm a sociologist by trade i understand so, so thinking about like how religion has changed in the u.s and how various eastern beliefs have been sort of co-opted and and uh, adapted for american uh i guess pop culture (laughs) maybe that's maybe i'm being too cynical but probably not but voodoo is never something that has has experienced that sort of like i don't know new age or uh hipsterization yeah no no,
1: i think it's i think it might be a little too scary about too much too much um blood bone flesh in it you know i think yeah (laughs) yeah
0: um, so I was I was hoping we could talk a little bit about what your process is like and and maybe sure. how your process um, for this piece because obviously you're doing a lot of uh, sort of internal research and, and revisiting your own catalog but in terms of the new pieces that you wrote for Voodoo Libretto um, what what is your process like? Well, um, you're talking about just the process by which I
1: a poem is brought into being. That's yeah, 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 yeah. Um, the pieces that the new pieces in Voodoo Libretto, for example, I wouldn't I didn't write them for Voodoo Libretto. They were just new poems that I've been working on. Okay. And so when when I had the chance to uh, have a, a section of new poems in the uh, in this book, I thought, well, I've got some <laughs> I got some new poems. Let's put them together in there. And so uh, so I, that, so I, I, I very rarely, I would say even. In any collection I've written, it's very rare that I begin with an idea that I'm writing poems for a book, a particular book. Generally speaking, I write poems because I really want to write poems. And then at a certain point, maybe in a couple of years or three years into a particular period, I'll think maybe these poems are adding up to a collection. Um, And then I'll start looking at the poems, thinking about relationships between the poems and how they speak to each other, argue with each other, or in, you know, really direct uh, conflict with each other and so on, and try to see if I can imagine a particular arc in a collection, a kind of subtle narrative arc. I don't write... Books of poems with a clear narrative arc, I don't think, although maybe, maybe some are more, obviously, that than others. But generally, I'm just writing poems, and I'm just into writing the poems. And then later on, years into a particular period of writing, I'll say, these things might work together in this way. Then I start to think about them as a book.
0: I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on the, on the idea of some of your pieces being in conflict with each other or arguing with each other.
1: Uh, well, there are lots of different things I want to do with a collection of poems. One thing I would like to avoid is monotony. I don't want all the poems to sound alike. Mm-hmm. I don't want all the poems um, to feel like there's only one particular bug in my brain. Mm-hmm. I just don't want that. And so I've written poems Some uh, in a, a single collection, for example, there will be funny poems, there'll be political poems, there'll be poems that are erotic, there'll be poems that are erotic political poems, there'll be poems that involve personas, other poems that are clearly probably have a more autobiographical uh, 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 origin. Um, so I, I'm trying to... to what I'm hoping is that page by page, uh, a reader will, will, will be surprised often, will say, Oh, wow, I didn't expect that, or Oh, you know, as opposed to reading, you know, 10 poems and thinking, Well, I kind of know what this is all about. You know, I may or may not have to finish this book. I want it to feel like I don't know, I want the reader to have the sense that, that she or, or he do, don't, doesn't know um, what's coming. Um, and uh, that, those are the books that I enjoyed most as a reader when I was a young man, and as even as, as an older man. Um, but that's what I'm going for, a surprise. So sometimes there'll be a poem, for example, if we speak in terms of tone, there'll be a poem that'll be very, maybe delicate, tender in a certain kind of way. And then very close to it, maybe the next poem will be much more hard line, maybe cynical, maybe bitter, you know, I mean, f- for example, that the collection Fast Animal, which was the, the book that came out before One Turn Around the Sun. What I was doing is I would have these poems that reflected on being a teenager. And in many respects, they were poems of innocence, really, that's what they were. They were what, I, you know, things I did not understand about life and how a particular experience may have sharpened my understanding or at least grew me up a little. I'm not sure I I have any uh, poems in there in which suddenly a revelation comes and I am completely a new man. I don't think that happened, but incrementally you become a bit wiser, um, a bit more aware of what the stakes are in this life. And uh, and I went in those poems of of teen of reflecting on my teenage years. You know, those I would call in many respects, even if they're they're funny, they would be more tender pieces. I would certainly feel tonally that those poems are just saying to the reader, for example, isn't this the way it is for us as, when we're young? You know, like, and and I'm hoping, of course, to engender. You know, uh, that impulse toward, you know, for the reader to recall his or her own past and think, yeah, I remember being a teenager and having an experience that was similar to this. But then in sharp contrast to those poems were the poems in which Blade, the vampire slayer, was was speaking. When Blade is in his mind, and I guess for all intents and purposes, in his world, he's at war all the time. He doesn't have any tenderness. <laughs> He's, he sees the world in pretty stark terms. The vampires are, are, are taking over the world, and there have to be a few of us who are willing to fight them and risk our lives, ultimately, to defeat vampires. Now, of course, in my mind, that's all metaphor. Um, I, I mean, I I mean, of course, in the movies there literally are vampires, and if you read into the graphic novels, the, those are literal vampires. But for me, Blade becomes an emblem of battling against evil, organized evil. You can call it could be racism, it could be really corrupt government, um, any number of things that were highly organized that are also in various ways killing us. Um, and so, for me, the Blade character was a way I could enact a certain part of my own rage, a certain part of my own fury about why certain things keep happening, and and, and also um, that part of myself that it would, would love to have a target to fight. But the fact is most of what we suffer in the world, at least in my world, uh, in this country, is often not visible. It's attitudes, it's subtle things that happen behind your back. It's what will the police officer do who's pulled me over? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the it's a level of anxiety, of feeling besieged, but not having any way to directly address what is attacking you. And so with the blade poems, the, the, the vampires become the object, the source of trouble, the source of evil. And so blade, is worn out and frustrated and you know and you know he's endlessly at war with with uh with uh a a group an organization that wildly outnumbers him you know and so there's that so that's a very different kind of engagement with reality than the poems about my teenage life for example you know and so blade can talk about killing blade will talk about having killed a vampire Whereas you know certainly the poems in which I'm I'm exploring recollections of my teen years, there's no such violence as that. You know, it's all <laughs> you know nervousness about girls or or discovering something about race. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's um, as I said, mostly what I'm trying to talk about is a, a kind of innocence that, mm-hmm. if we're fortunate, there's a period in our lives when the ugliness of the world is simply not really apparent. Mm-hmm. Um, it grow, the, it, the shadow of, of, the, of what is wrong in the world grows longer and longer as we live, and soon it is on us. And so Blade is the emblem of a, of, of a human being <laughs> who has basically been consumed by the darkness that the world embodies, whereas the poems about teen life are really about a kind of, you know, not seeing the world, in 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 warring terms, or in in terms of its uh, its um, worst aspects.
0: So uh, it's like you anticipated <laughs> what I really wanted to have this interview about. Um, I was uh, I was reading through Fast Animal this morning, and there's a um, so first just uh, one of the poems, and I'm I'm completely drawing a blank on the title. But you're talking to an older boy about taking a girl named tina to a party
1: yeah it's it's uh it's uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. it's the poem to my older brother <laughs> yeah it's uh it's um oh man it's so funny you say that it's uh uh my brother tom the bomb don juan of Georgia. yeah yes, so that's the yes. uh, epigraph um and i'm trying to remember the actual title
0: but So the funny. the back and oh. forth and just how that that uh the confidence that swagger of a, of a young man who may be totally clueless
1: right well <laughs> that's the it, right oh, in my was, mind
0: my was brother so is the wisest person in the yep.
1: world but he <laughs> doesn't know much more than i do
0: um but to the to the to the other the other point about blade so the first time that i got to see you read at wilkes um well before I, I was familiar with the or, or anything like that. Um you're you were introduced as as the poet laureate of Virginia and this is a very solemn thing. And uh, this is this is no disrespect to anybody who's done readings at Wilkes, but they there's a very there's an air of of seriousness around like I'm going to a reading and you come up and, and you read a few of your pieces and then you say that you're going to read a poem about blade. And I said, wait, what, <laughs> what just happened? And so after, after I got out of this, out of the, the dart center that night, I, I texted a friend of mine who is a massive fan of Blade. And I said, you're not going to believe <laughs> what I just witnessed, what I've just experienced. And so I've been wanting to ask you um, for like the last couple of years, what why blade and and what was your inspiration and what drew you to that character and you <laughs> you took it all the way from well, me. well there are, there so that are was great
1: that, there are a couple things i didn't say but um i i was during um george w bush's um first term and even into the second term i was i felt a uh, and it wasn't Bush himself so much. He was mostly, what would you say, an enabler of people like Ashcroft and Rice and Cheney. Yes, uh, Bush yes. himself was, at least in my sense of things, uh, kind of perhaps in some ways well-meaning, but really not particularly capable of the kind of wicked orchestrations that some of the people in his administration and his cabinet were, mm-hmm. I'll say that. Um, and so, I, I don't know, I felt often pretty unhappy about the, the, the feel of the country during that period. And I, and I had seen, uh, I think one of the Blade movies, maybe the second one by this time, I'm not even sure anymore. But I remember there was a moment when I just heard a voice in my head. I think the very first Blade poem, um, let me see, I think I have it here. Or the voice said in my mind, like a stake in my heart, this life. And I heard that line and I thought, who's talking? (laughs) And I said, that has to be Blade, you know. And once I had once I got a sense that Blade was going to speak to me in these, uh, in these lyrical kind of ferocious uh, poems, ah, man, I was just off to the races. Because I think what happens with most of us of whatever color, but certainly if you're Black in this country or a person of color in this country, you're often obliged to swallow quite a bit of your frustration and, and, yeah. and anger about the way things go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so with Blade as my, as my mouthpiece, I could talk about certain kinds of anxieties and furies that were very real to me in my, my own life, but really could operate as metaphor in the poems. Um, I do not want to kill anyone, for example, <laughs> uh, but Blade does. Mm-hmm. He wants to kill vampires. He knows what they stand for, mm-hmm. you know, and he knows that they are the 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 uh, the the primary source of evil and suffering in the world, right? And so, with Blade as a as a persona, I could get at a lot of kinds of of anger despair, um, confusion that i would be harder to articulate if I were trying to simply write autobiographically. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was what opened the door. I was my frustration with the W um, years, and the idea that we were in fact, living with a highly organized kind of evil. Um, Which much of the evil of that administration, for example, might have been defined by omission, just leaving out certain truths, um, creating truths that are not true, (laughs) you know, um, that (laughs) kind of stuff. Um, Certainly, um, when we think about Trump, it, it was actually much worse in certain respects because He's, he was, he's so consumed he ha- during his administration, he's still the same way, but during his presidency, you could see he was so utterly consumed with his mm-hmm. brilliance and his, and his worthiness that he had no way of seeing into himself and recognizing that he is a perfect emblem of just about everything I would oppose. <laughs> you know what I mean, yeah. it was perfect, you know? So if I hadn't written the Blade poems during the W years, they certainly would have emerged during <laughs> the Trump years, you know? Yeah. Um So yeah, but that's really where Blade comes from. He comes from, he, Blade just allowed me access to certain feelings and certain, mm-hmm. you know, ways of thinking that, mm-hmm. you know, generally speaking, as a as a human being who aspires to a peaceful way in the world i would not think but of course mm. I, I i deal with terrible furies and, and frustrations mm. and so it was they just allowed me to get at that in a way that i couldn't have otherwise
0: really. mm-hmm. yeah I, I just think it's so interesting because at, at least especially with marvel as a comic book company they have um not always but have intentionally you know, drawn lots of parallels to to various social issues, and especially um, have created their own sort of like parallel civil rights sort of uh, universe. I, I think mm-hmm. um, it hasn't come on film necessarily yet, um, um, at least not with this this current iteration of films. But mm. it's it's very interesting, and is something that has, as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate just how how much stuff like that that is is so casually cast off as like just kid stuff is mm-hmm. um, actually really uh uh challenging us to think of these really important social issues and, and problems oh, in, yeah. in ways yeah. that are more accessible than just like yeah. right. documentary or whatever
1: yeah it's more i mean in many respects you know the marvel universe is is allegorical mm-hmm. you know it's really you know surely though we wish there were superheroes We don't have anybody that I know of who can fly or move around at the speed of light or all that, Mm -hmm. but we do have extraordinary human beings who who try to help us while they're here. Mm -hmm. And and though there are no monsters per se, uh, in the world at least that I know of, there are many people who embody really ugly things. Mm-hmm. And they in that way, are enact, enacting a kind of monstrosity. And mm-hmm. so you feel that, that in many respects, the Marvel universe is allegorical, mm-hmm. that they're talking about evil and good and ethics and mm-hmm. those who are without ethics. They're talking about those things, um, but... Uh, you know you can also just say wow look at superman he's so strong <laughs> you can yeah you do that too <laughs> but i think there's a another another level of thinking that goes on mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah i i teach a class called violence in society and we and we talk about like the origin of a lot of comic book characters and, and why they were created and what they were meant to represent mm-hmm. um, as sort of a reflection of american values and then how very shortly after they were created there was a a major backlash against them and and there's a you know self-censorship um from a lot of comic book creators um in order to Mm -hmm. allow it to be able to continue to sell their stories and it's just it's so it's such an interesting part of american history to me that all all of the just all of it all of it (laughs) so um but i have taken up a lot of your time today uh and i i do not want to keep you uh, trapped here while i dork out about comic book stuff oh I, you. I'm, so, you know,
1: I'm enjoying the conversation
0: <laughs> um but i i do have to let you go because i have to uh i have dad uh duties i have to go oh, okay oh yeah well, i don't want to <laughs> so, keep
1: you from your dad no. duties, not for sure. <laughs> but anyway well uh, hopefully you got at least some sense of oh what definitely I'm trying yeah. to do and, and what kinds of things are ticking around in my brain
0: so <laughs> absolutely this has <laughs> been this has been such a pleasure tim thanks thank you and so thanks much. for
1: taking your time and being so thoughtful andrew i really appreciate it oh i appreciate you um okay. enjoy the rest of your day you too my friend
0: for more on tenured tracks please go to untenured.space to access our archives or go to patreon.com slash untenured to help support us